Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data center podcast brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray and Senior Reporters Abigail LaPierre and Natalie Bannerman. Over the course of this episode, we're going to be talking about the biggest stories from the last week, which include the lowdown on all the new people at the FCC so far, as well as a boost for 4G coverage in the UK and a new fibre venture from Orange. There's also been some massive sustainability news from Europe's data center operators and new figures confirming the dominance of the hyperscalers. And we're also going to hear why it's the end of an era at SoftBank and what the top tech brands are from around the world. But first this week, we are starting in the data center space with some news that actually broke as we were recording last week's episode. And it's on the topic of sustainability. Um, Now, sustainability at the cause has obviously been an issue for a number of years, but we're seeing a growing shift now to sustainability as a business driver and investment vehicle, which is massively speeding up our shift to the so-called net zero world. So on that note, last week it was announced that cloud infrastructure providers and data center operators have created the Climate Neutral Data Center Pact. Um, And Abigail, who has covered this story, is going to bring us a little bit more on the good news. Yes, thank you for that introduction. Um, The news was mentioned briefly by me last week um, with, I had like very little information. I just um, skimmed over what exactly the pact was. But since then, obviously I've, um, I've looked into it in more detail and found that obviously 25 companies and 17 associations have um, agreed to self-regulatory initiative to make um, the data center in Europe climate neutral by um, 2030. So, you know, last week data center giant Equinix were one of the first companies to announce their involvement, but um, other companies and data center providers include um, Cyrus One, Data4, Digiplex, Digital Realty slash Interaction. Google's also involved, plus many, many more. You know, I'm not going to name all of them. And some of the trade associations include, you know, the European Data Center Association, which is huge, France Data Centers, Host in Scotland, and my personal favorite, Tech UK, because they've always been, you know, advocates for, you know, sustainability in the data center sector. So, yeah, it's really nice to see um, some of the some of the fan favorites on board. Um, So the pact will commit um, all those involved to ensure that um, their data centers or any kind of data center um, association that they have will be climate neutral by setting, you know, ambitious um, measurable targets for 2025 and 2030. So key areas include providing energy efficiency with measurable targets, the data center providers will be expected to purchase 100% carbon free energy. They're also expected to um, prioritize water conserva- conservation. Pronounce that right? All in a tongue twist today. And um, looking for ways to recycle heat. So these are, you know, just a few things that the pact will make sure that they are doing henceforth. So this is a huge step in the right direction as far as sustainability targets are concerned. And it is refreshing to see that there will be some sorts of accountability as um, progress towards achieving climate neutral data centers will be monitored by the European Commission twice a year. So they, this, it sounds like it's not just going to be an initiative that, you know, is made a big deal about and then nobody's ever checking up on it or seeing the progress. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's going to be 
you know game changing for the industry fantastic yeah fingers crossed let's hope so um and that regulatory piece is also really important so it's great to hear that it will actually be measured um and a long-term thing as well um but that's not all that's been happening in the world of data centers um abigail tell us what other sustainable developments have been on your radar this week yeah, so it's nice to have a little theme. So sticking with sustainability um, data center news, this week I also covered that Cyrus One um, is purchasing, no, they've actually purchased, sorry, they've purchased um, a 67 megawatt of renewable energy delivered to the electrical grid and equivalent renewable energy credits generated by Enel Green Powers, 24. 284 megawatt as a sky solar plus storage project located in Texas. The company said that the agreement reflects its commitment to accelerate and transition to renewable energy resources in local communities as part of Cyrus One's um, effort under a pledge to operate a carbon free um, grid um, and all its data centers to be carbon free by 2040. So it's nice to see that they've they've joined the pact in Europe and they're doing this in Texas. Cyrus One, um, they've said that they've planned to reduce its, their CO2 emissions over the term of this contract. The company also has planned to retire um, project specific renewable attributes from Azure Solar, um, Sky Solar Plus storage equal to 100% of the power usage at its Dallas headquarters. Um, now, Cyrus One has previously procured solar power for its um, Chandler facility in Arizona, and its data centers in London, Amsterdam also run on renewable energy. So this is nothing new for them, and it's just nice to see that they're expanding and moving forward just focusing on sustainability. Now, going back to Europe, um, a Polish telecommunication company um, called Netia revealed two days ago or three days ago, um, that it will be switching all its data center and cloud service services power supply to green energy by next week. So their target is the 1st of February this year. Netia said that it will also be um, an emergency power supply in the company's data center under construction in Warsaw. The company has concluded an agreement with Inodi um, Polska um, for a supply of green energy through selected routes, supply and data center facilities in Warsaw um, and the other facilities around Poland. Um, the power is going to be generated by an onshore wind farm, which is um, quite interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'd like to see how close um, these wind farms are to the actual data centers. So um, I haven't seen any footage or pictures of that yet, but I'll be on the lookout for that. Netia also plans to provide its newest data center near Warsaw with um, renewable energy also. The company said it will begin to com um, the commercialization of the facility, which will be put into use at the start or middle of this year. Um, the company uh, provides online communication solutions for private users entrepreneurs, companies and institutions um, in and around Poland. So, yeah, this is another um, big story um, for, you know, the telecommunications uh, mix with data center space. I haven't actually heard of Netia until this week, so it was interesting to cover and just, you know, do some research about the company and see what they're doing with sustainable and renewable energy. So, yeah, that was my sustainable roundup. But um, I also had a look at stories outside of sustainability and came across the 
the news piece that you covered, Mel, which was about Synergy's new um, report. So their new research found out that Amazon, Microsoft and Google are saturating the hyperscale market with the three collectively accounting for over half of all major data center facilities, which is huge. Imagine three three companies accounting for half of all data centers. It's, to me, that was amazing. I was like, how did they had them? I guess with money and and yeah. But Amazon and Google opened the highest number of new facilities in the last twelve months, accounting for half of all new stocks in 2020. Now the findings um, show that more than 70% of all hyperscale data centers are located in um, facilities leased from data center operators or owned by partners of the hyperscale operators. In terms of locations, um, the US continues to account for almost 40% of the major cloud and internet data center sites. Um, and the next most popular locations are, you know, places like China, Japan, Germany, the UK and Australia. Um, obviously, Mel, you covered this. So if you could, I don't know, is there anything else that you thought was quite interesting about um, this synergy piece? Yeah, I was just really, really shocked by the numbers, like you said, um, yeah. because it's just such a huge concentration of power. Um, but also, like, I just thought you know everything that you hear from the industry is that networks and data centers and just the entire kind of like e internet ecosystem and connectivity area just needs diversity it's part of the resilience it's part of making sure that you know if something goes down too many people aren't affected and just to see that concentration of power I just thought was quite phenomenal and obviously it's great for the hyperscale Bratons um but is it great for the actual kind of industry I guess we'll wait for the worst case scenario to happen and figure out a way through that and answer the question from there but yeah I don't and, know. and it may be something that the new administration in Washington will be looking at because you know they're That's taking on the uh, the big OTT companies but yeah. Concentration of power in data centres, uh, as you both say, is obviously going to be a big, potentially a big issue for them. Yeah, it is, it is an interesting topic, especially because um, with data centre uh, operators, they will never come out outright and say, you know what, we're actually not on top of the whole, you know, sustainable energy <laughs> power that everyone that you ask or you interview will definitely tell you that, yes, we're on top of it. We are aware and we're making sure we're sustainable. So it'll be just nice to see, you know, put their money where their mouth is. Let's see whether what they're saying is correct and let's see whether they are actually um, going to manage the demand of obviously the, the, with the more data that's being um, produced just to see whether their data center demands can withhold sustainable energy. I'd like to see how that would look like in the future. That is a good point, yeah, bringing the two trends together because Google, um, I think, is the largest corporate purchaser of sustainable energy. Yeah. Um, they definitely lead in some um, renewable energy procurement um, field. I can't remember exactly what the um, what the metrics are, but yeah, like you say, I mean, maybe this will accelerate the greening of the sector um, or perhaps it's just going to lead to that corporate concentration, which Alan referred to, you know, that the US has firmly got in its sights now, um, especially now we've got Biden in there and some new people at the FCC, which we're going to talk about very soon as well. Thank you, Abigail. Um, excellent roundup there. Um, so now on to the telecom space. Um, and to Natalie, who's going to bring us the biggest news of recent days. Natalie, over to you. 
Thanks, Mal. Yeah, so as you mentioned, some really interesting stories for, for this week. Um, we kicked off uh, with the news that Orange was launching a new venture called Orange Concessions, um, a brand new entity in uh, national fibre to the home and currently valued at approximately 2.6 billion. So a, a huge accomplishment there. Um, the new business is a joint venture with European investors um, and meaning that Orange will have a 50% share and co-control of Orange Concessions. Uh, the company's assets the company's assets will include uh, 23 public initiative networks. It will also manage the fibre networks rolled out and operated on behalf of local public authorities. This means that all of the networks um, under Orange concessions um, on behalf of these public um, authorities are neutral and therefore open to all operators in the country. Um, in addition, the fibre rollout and the maintenance will be carried out by Orange. Now, the deal is expected to close by the end of the year and comes in line with Orange's engaged 2025 plan, which is obviously their high level um, strategic plan up into the year 2025 um, and will basically give Orange the ability to bolster its development in rural fibre. So like many operators around the world, it's, it's seeming like uh, rural connectivity really seems like the biggest hurdle that the industry has to overcome. So kudos to Orange for advancing this cause. Now, um, for a bit of a bittersweet one over at Bix, the company um, has bid farewell to long-standing CEO Daniel Kurgan, Kurgan sorry, uh, naming Matteo uh, Gatta as his replacement. Now, what was most interesting about this story was the fact that the uh, company said that Kurgan and the board of directors had to, quote, come to the mutual conclusion to end their collaboration. Uh, so leaving it a, a little open to interpretation as to whether he left or was asked to leave. But regardless, after 14 years at the helm, um, he has overseen a, a great deal of change at Bix and I'm sure he will be missed. Now, his replacement, uh, Gatta, actually comes from Proximus, who is Bix's parent company, where he most recent, recently served as director of Network Strategy, Innovation and Partnerships. And now leading Bix, he is set to accelerate the company's growth and diversification strategy by developing its position in digital communications, cloud services, mobility, IoT, um, as well as wholesale carrier services. Um, at the time of the announcement, Joseph Burton, the former CEO of Poly, was also appointed as the new CEO of Telesign. Uh, for those who don't know, Telesign is the US US-based subsidiary of BIX, um, and they offer programmable comms and digital identity services. Um, as I mentioned, Burton served as CEO of Plantronics, which is now Poly, from 2016 to 2020. So a bit of a, a restructuring over at BIX, and we can't wait to see what changes are in store there. Now over to the US, as you mentioned, uh, Melanie, uh, the FCC um, has kind of been going through a, a real kind of change. Um, you know, uh, the story um, about Jessica Rosenworcel, who was the front runner for the um, FCC chair, um, was rather unsurprisingly named as acting chair late last week. Um, so she is currently awaiting approval from the Senate to be made permanent chairwoman. But um, that really hasn't slowed down her, her down and, and earlier. She has actually made a slew of appointments and designations to her team. Now um, we have Travis Lippman, who was named as Acting Chief of Staff, uh, Kate Black, who was named um, Acting Chief Policy Officer. The Acting Chief Counsel position went to um, Umer Javed. Uh, Duana Terry will serve as Acting uh, Special Advisor to the Chairwoman and Acting Director of the Office of Workplace Diversity. 
The Office of Business Communications Opportunities actually welcomes Sanford Williams as director and acting special advisor to the chairwoman as well. Uh, Trent Hawk Radder will assume the position of acting special advisor to the chairwoman and deputy bureau chief of the Wireline Competition Bureau. Holly Soro was promoted to the role of acting legal advisor. The position of acting legal advisor for consumer enforcement and international has actually gone to David Strickland. Uh, Ramesh uh, Nagar, uh, Nagarajan will assume the role of acting legal advisor for Wireline. Ethan Lucarelli will uh, act as legal advisor for wireless and public safety. Uh, Aurel Porter has been named as um, acting staff assistant and Andy Rowan will serve as acting confidential, confidential assistant. So all in all, I think it's pretty safe to say that Rosen Wurstle is not expecting much of a pushback uh, to her appointment and is pretty much preparing to fully assume the role in the near future. Um, some really great appointments there. Um, I'll be honest, the FCC has so many uh, commissioners and directors that it's it's hard to be familiar with uh, many of them, but um, it was really um, warming to see that um, at least 50% of the, the people on this list were women um, and from quite a diverse background, which is really in line with what I think Rosen Wurstle's is trying to achieve with this new team. So great to see that. Now, uh, today, some exciting news for the UK also came in. O2, 3 and Vodafone have said that they will partner to build 222 new mobile masks to boost rural rural coverage. Now, the news forms part of the, the first part, sorry, of a shared rural network, an agreement between EE, O2, 3 and Vodafone to invest in a network of new and existing phone mass masks um, overseen by a jointly owned company called Digital Mobile Spectrum Limited that they would all share. So this news forms part of that earlier agreement. Now, broken down, 124 new sites will be built in Scotland, 33 in Wales, 11 in Northern Ireland and 54 in England, with each of the three um, aforementioned operators being responsible for the development of 74 sites each. Construction is due to start later this year with completion set for 2024 as per the agreement with the UK government and its telecom operator Ofcom. The project will actually, once completed, will actually increase the proportion of UK landmass of 4 mobile networks from 67% to 84%. It will also, um, according to the, the three operators, virtually eliminate partial not spot areas where there is at least one operator that provides 4G coverage. Now, interestingly, the privately funded um, shared rural network has actually sparked the UK government to make a 500 million pledge of its own, um, which is to eliminate areas where there is no 4G coverage from any operator. This will actually increase all mobile operators UK landmass to 90% with a combined coverage of 95%, which would be, you know, an incredible achievement. So great news for rural uh, mobile users. You know, greater access to 4G will mean, you know, so much more than I think better calls or, you know, content or gaming. Um, but I think it will also affect businesses and communities that use wireless comms for things like, you know, agritech or IoT. So it will, it will be really interesting to see what opportunities will come from this increased connectivity. Back to you, Mel. Thanks so much, Natalie. Amazing roundup. Um, really love that Rosen Wessel has very much got her feet under the table there. Um, and like you said, a fantastically diverse lineup, which is amazing after four years of the Trump administration. Um, so staying on the appointment theme, we're going to hear now from Alan on the changes underway at SoftBank. Thanks, Melanie. Yes, it's the end of an era, very much so at SoftBank. The founder, Masayoshi Son, he's stepping down as chairman at the end of March. 
and he's handing over to the current CEO, Ken Miyauchi. And the new CEO will be Junichi Miyakawa, who's CTO at the moment. And sorry, uh, they're all men, um, but <laughs> there we are. Um, I don't think there are any women executives at the high levels of, of SoftBank, but I might be wrong. Um, Masason, as his friends and associates call him, he was an in early investor in both Yahoo, uh, when it spread into Japan, and Alibaba. Um, and I think he's still got that shareholding. But he's had some bumps along the way, and his vision fund, which was a very bold idea to get into new technologies, that's had some challenges. Uh, he's Japanese of Korean ethnicity, so he's faced some racism during his life uh, in his home country. Uh, he went to university in the US, the University of California at Berkeley, no less, where he did economics and computer science, which is good training for a high-tech entrepreneur. And apparently his first product was an electronic translator, um, which he sold to Sharp for $1.7 million. Uh, and thereby began his fortune uh, and his enterprise. Um, last, last week, he came back into OneWeb, the UK Indian satellite project that we've talked about recently. Um, he was an early investor in that, but lost his money when it went into Chapter 11 last year. One of the bumps on the road. So what's the future of SoftBank? Well, the new CEO, Junichi Miyakawa, he's a telecoms guy through and through. He did uh, telecoms engineering or electronic engineering at university, he started his own company before joining the SoftBank group his own telco before joining SoftBank Group. So he's been involved in the industry for a long time. And at SoftBank, he's been involved with areas such as uh, high altitude platforms, that's planes and balloons and that sort of thing to deliver mobile signals more widely. He went back to the US because SoftBank was the major shareholder in Sprint as its head of network te technology uh, before last year's merger with T-Mobile when SoftBank until then, had been the controlling shareholder. Now, of course, it's Deutsche Telekom, which was the controlling shareholder in T-Mobile US. Um, he's got a vision to integrate telecoms with e-commerce and internet media, fintech and social media. And so we should start to see that, in emer that emerge in a couple of months once he takes over. But uh, Son is going to be, a, I think, a great loss. He's not got somebody with a really public face. He's not somebody who speaks at conferences or things like that. He's very much behind the scenes, but a lot of the people that we talk to, the four of us here, um, talk to actually know him. Uh, people, he's uh, been really involved in the mobile industry and the wider telecoms and internet industry. He knows almost everybody he's in the industry in senior positions. So I think they're going to find it hard to replace him. But uh, I guess he probably wants a break and he's only in his early 60s. So, you know, he's got quite a few other things to do, no doubt, before he goes. And he's going to stay on as a director on the SoftBank board. He's going to be called founder and director. So he's keeping that founder tag on his title. But, um, yeah, his uh, the new team takes over on the 1st of April, which always seems to me about strange day for new management to take over but that will be a year year to the day since t-mobile us merged with sprint so uh, an interesting anniversary so melanie interesting indeed one for the diary there um <clears throat> thanks alan and our last story of the week takes a slightly different approach um we're going to talk next about branding and um, because you've covered the news that um wechat is apparently one of the world's strongest tech brands and deutsche telecom did okay too um what's been going on on that front 
Yeah, it's a question, what is a brand worth? And there's a company every year that tries to tell us, uh, usually with some surprising results, it's called Brand Finance. And it produces every January uh, carefully segmented league tables. And for this year, they say that WeChat, which is a Chinese messaging, social media and e-commerce service, as one of the world's strongest brands, uh, according to its ratings. Now, brand finance, it's very clever. It always picks a lot of winners. I mean, as well as WeChat, it announced this week Australia's more, most valuable brands and India's, India's most valuable brands. There's the most valuable car brand in the world and the fastest growing brand in the Netherlands and so on and so on and so on. And there are losers. And of course, you won't be surprised to hear that that's in the travel industry. So Booking.com was down. Expedia did so badly it fell out of the top 100 ranking. Airbnb was down 30 percent. There's no surprise. Uh, Royal Caribbean, the cruise liner, went down 90 percent. And all the airlines took a big hit. Now, this isn't real money. This is this is brand finance putting a dollar value on, on what they think the brands are worth. And nobody goes along and says, can we sell your brand? Not very often. I mean, we saw a case here in the UK earlier this week when Debenhams, uh, which is uh, in reconstruction, uh, likely to sell off all its stores, but it sold off its brand earlier this week for, I think, about £40 million pounds to uh, another company. So brands have a value, but uh, possibly in real life rather less than uh, brand finance claims. Anyway, Apple, no surprise, has overtaken Amazon and Google to reclaim the title of the world's most valuable tech brand. Uh, in telecoms, Verizon and AT&T uh, were the two top ones, followed by Deutsche Telekom and then China Mobile. And globally, uh, Deutsche Telekom is in 23rd place in the overall ranking of the world's most valuable brands, apparently worth $51.1 billion, though I don't understand the calculation. I'm sure if Deutsche <laughs> Telekom's put the brand up for sale, who would buy it and who would pay $51.1 billion for it? So I don't understand. Alibaba.com did well in China, thanks to the pandemic. Um, Brand Finance said its brand value had gone up by 108%, so more than doubled to $39.2 billion. So with that, we chat uh, a good year for China. Um, no thanks to Donald Trump, who last December, if you remember, tried to block WeChat and other Chinese financial and Internet services from operating in the US, uh, something that probably still needs to be sorted out under the new administration. But brands, I mean, it's it's a it's a weird market. Um, obviously, a lot of people put a lot in the brands and, and companies like Deutsche Telekom have people who are in charge of brands, chief brand officers and things like that. So we shouldn't knock it. But it's very strange. I find it quite that you could put a, 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 a value on it to three significant figures, you know, 39.2 billion. I mean, what is that all about? Anyway, <laughs> and others, what do you think? <laughs> I think the branding opportunities for the report authors are probably incredibly strong as well. I'd like to see the impact <laughs> on their brand after this PR exercise went out. Um, but it's interesting because there is a pandemic theme here, isn't there, with all the travel industry big, big travel industry names dropping off and then all these in the consumer world, especially the Western consumer world, WeChat's quite an obscure name when, yes. when it comes to branding. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the only people really who in, in the West who use WeChat are people who've been to China or have Chinese uh, family or business contacts. I mean, I use well, WeChat yeah, you to, to, to contact people it. in Huawei. Huawei. And you, yeah, um, <laughs> I, I first downloaded it in, in China, I think, about four years ago. 
and so my, most of my contacts are, are Chinese on WeChat, but it's not very much. Uh, probably about 10 or 12. Uh, so uh, most of whom are in China or the neighborhood, you know, Hong Kong or whatever. Uh, so it's not, but in China, it's big and it has uh, a huge um, e-finance role, e-money role, uh, mobile money role. It was, uh, uh, it, HGC, for example, did an association with them uh, a, few, a couple of years ago um, so that they can expand their services around outside China. So, uh, yeah, it's, I was just about to open it up on my phone see who's in there but it's um, it, it was surprising and i guess it's the power of the size of china is the significant thing there definitely yeah um how does everybody else feel about the names on those lists any surprises anything you think um should have been included um i mean no names to be included i mean i'm always interested with these kind of listicles it kind of reminds me of the forbes one you know in terms of how they get their information and how they're kind of grading it kind of what you were saying alan in terms of how they're able to put a, a, a number to it but um it's interesting because when i think of brands especially you know more so in the the kind of digital and telco space i also think you know outside of you know their kind of product value proposition you know do things like, you know, what they're doing around, you know, the environment and sustainability and, you know, DNI, are these things also kind of factored into these listings and does it make a difference to a brand and, you know, whether or not people will choose specific brands because of what they're doing outside of just their kind of, you know, day-to-day, -day, you know, offerings. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be interesting to kind of look at because I think it's increasingly becoming, um, in many cases, you know, a real differentiator in terms of, you know, what sets some brands, aside, you know, apart from others. You know, I remember this really great quote, which was that, you know, nobody thinks about the network until it stops working. So if you think about, you know, in terms of what everybody offers, provided, you know, the, the network works and, you know, you know, everyone's getting the speed that they need, etc. Um, sometimes it's those extra things that will really kind of separate one brand from, from another. So I'd be interested to know whether it factors in those um, other slightly more CSR based things into the, the brand image and brand value. And it's very hard for telco because, you know, nobody these days at least of my friends say, oh, they're on three or Vodafone or orange or whatever it might be they talk about what phone they've got uh, <laughs> and what and what services they use whether it's netflix or instagram or stuff like that the phone network just goes into the background so i'm not sure how they value the brand there yeah, it's true. I've yeah, I mean, I think it used to be in back in the day, people would go with one network over the other because, you know, one network had a better coverage and, you know, those I'm not going to name names, but I remember there was one that was notorious for like their network was really poor and you wouldn't join them unless, you know, they were very, very cheap, but then their coverage was really, really poor. So, you know, unless there's like those big differences. Yeah. As you mentioned, yeah. it, it kind of is an on an on an equal keel these days, isn't it? It's those yeah. extra things that are going to set them apart. Yeah, I used to remember exactly the point in the, the high street just around the corner from me as I walked out of the station with no mobile coverage whatsoever and walked up past the NatWest Bank, which of course has long since closed. Uh, and I suddenly got a signal and I could phone home and say, yes, I'm just around the corner. Do we yeah. want any milk or anything like that? But yeah, when, when coverage was was bad in urban areas, I mean, and as you said earlier, it's going to be improved in in rural areas as well over the next couple of years. 
Interesting points there, though. Um, <clears throat> Natalie, do you um, or have you ever chosen a brand or chosen a product or a service based on the kind of ethics of the company behind it? Um, I have not. OK, so not in the telco space, but I have in my kind of like clothing or even like food, like food is a a big one for me. I mean, I'm 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 not like vegan or vegetarian or any of those things. I want to make that, that clear. But um, you know, even like buying certain things, I'll buy certain things that are like fair trade or I find know is like deliberately harming the environment. I'm I'm kind of a little bit conscientious in that way. Um so I certainly have and I think there's a lot of people, especially if you look at the kind of millennial Gen Z generation will make a huge difference in terms of their buying behavior. So I, I certainly think it's something that will um, kind of take a, a, have a bigger emphasis over time. Because as I said, I feel like unless, you know, specifically in the telco space, I, I think unless your network is like really, really poor and there's like a huge difference between you and, you know, the next guy up, I think it's those extra things that are going to really make you stand out. I mean, I don't know about you, but if 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 I called my, you know, my mobile operator and and they said I was getting, you know, a gig, you know, slower speeds than what I should be getting, I'm not sure I would be able to tell the difference. You know what I mean? It's it's one yeah, of those yeah, things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I certainly have, but just not, you know, with my kind of digital services, but in other areas, I certainly have. And I think brand is maybe the reason you go to a company in the first place. I mean, I remember when I got my first mobile phone, which was a long, long time ago, it was the mid-90s, I think, and it was orange because they just launched and they came up with a really exciting promotional campaign um, and talking about where, you know, some days all no phones will have wires, you know, and things like that. And it was uh, really good. And then a few years later, um, eight years later, three came along and did a really good promotion of how good it was for data. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it got me interested. And I've been a three subscriber ever since. Whereas Vodafone always struck me, sorry, friends in Vodafone, and I love you dearly, <laughs> always sounded <laughs> to me like a bunch of engineers, which might mean it's reliable, but nevertheless, there wasn't that sort of pizzazz that you get with an exciting brand. And O2, I mean, O2, I mean the other brands are in the, uh, I think the UK brand, all, most UK companies, phone companies have changed brand over the last few years, uh, except BT, which has changed its logo, but not its brand. But uh, in the States, it's still AT&T and Verizon for the last two decades, really, and uh, not a lot of movement. And I think, forgive me if I'm wrong, but that was part of well, what I would see when I was on social media with brands like um, Sprint. I would forever be seeing like they had really great kind of, you know, flashy adverts and all those kind of things. But I'd constantly be seeing like messages and like, but the signal is bad and I can't connect when I'm here and I can't connect when I'm there and all those kind of things, which is I think is probably one of the reasons why it struggled and obviously is now part of T-Mobile US. But um, that's what I mean in the sense that I feel like unless there's like a glaring um, issue with, the you know, your network services, you know, most people, unless it's broken, nobody really yeah. knows, do they? Not the average person. Yeah. So. And as far as ethics was concerned, Melanie, you were asking. I mean, I yeah, I will if I can, um, I will buy fair trade stuff. Um, but look, we all use electronics, and a lot of it's made in sweatshops in southern China or western China. We don't know the whole story uh, of. Uh, 
Now, there's been a lot of focus, so we're recording this on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, there's been a lot of focus today on, on what's going on in the Uyghur community in Western China. And uh, we don't know who what's made where. So, you know, there's this uh, absence of information that we have if we're going to make ethical choices. That is very, very true. Yes. And the um, manufacturing base in um, in China, sorry, the manufacturing base in that Chinese province in particular does include some massive electronics companies, um, but we are yet to hear from them what they are doing to make sure that their supply chains are safe. And I think that this is very much going to be a huge consideration, especially as you've all said, moving forward when it comes to the ethics of things, um, and especially as people do become more aware of the world and what's happening in the bigger picture. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. One point on phone branding, though, that I've always found um, really interesting is the way that major brands will have a sub-brand that they try to, you know, like pick up the millennial or the Gen Z customers with, like Vodafone had Voxy. Like, why? <laughs> Just have <laughs> yep. one brand. But then again, with what you're saying, Alan, <clears throat> you know, the general feeling when you hear a certain name isn't, oh, this is a really happening brand that I want to, you know, flash on my phone every time it turns on and off. It's um, <laughs> Yeah. And when yeah. Virgin Mobile started in, in the UK in the, oh, when was it? Early 2000s. Um, it was the first MPNO in, in the world, I think. And it used T-Mobile's infrastructure. Um T-Mobile UK's infrastructure, obviously. Uh, it when they did coverage reports, people on Virgin Mobile, largely because of its marketing and promotion and its sort of general uh, the excitement that it tried to convey, people said, "Oh yes, it's great coverage." Whereas T-Mobile in the UK was really down quite low on the in the ratings, uh, even though they both used the same network. It's really quite extraordinary. It showed. Public perception is important, but it's sometimes wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's what branding is. A weird and wonderful world. Much like people. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, to the um, fantastic news and stories that you've brought us today. Um, that's the end of this episode. And thank you, everybody, to, who listened as well. Um, we will, of course, return next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. Um, but until then, you can catch up with all the latest from across the telco and data center industries over at capacitymedia.com. You can also sign up to daily news alerts from Capacity and the weekly news alerts from Data Economy. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week. Take care and catch you next time.